Welcome to Pushing the Limits with your host, Lisa Tarmody, where it's all about health optimization, anti-aging, longevity, and being the very best you can be. Brought to you by lisatarmody.com. Well, hi, everyone. Lisa Tarmody here at Pushing the Limits. Today, I have a bit of a, a reverse interview for you. I was had the privilege of being on the DNA Talks podcast with the famous Kashif Khan, who is a world-renowned longevity expert, ex-CEO of the DNA company, who still works closely with them. And this is a company that I've been working with for a number of years. I do the genetic testing in my clinic, and I love what he's all about. He's also the author of The DNA Way. And yeah, give him a follow on Instagram. Go and check out the podcast, the DNA Talks podcast, and check out our genetic testing, what we do at the DNA company. So uh, if you go over to my website and hit the work with us button, you'll see uh, the DNA testing there. Um, so make sure you go and check that out. But this is a talk. Uh, Kashif is un- uh, interviewing me today about my life story, my my background and so on. But we're really going into longevity, uh, the longevity sciences that we both study um, extensively and into how to slow the aging process, how genetics has helped me change my lifestyle and optimize my health. So I think you'll find it very, very interesting. And that's why I wanted to share this uh, interview that I did on his show over on Pushing the Limits. So I do hope you enjoy it. And if you're on YouTube, uh, make sure you um, like and subscribe and share this content with everybody. We really do appreciate that. Um, Now, before I head over to the show, please check out everything I do at lisatarmity.com. We have everything from a hyperbaric oxygen therapy clinic here in New Plymouth. We have red light therapy now also on offer at the clinic. We have a longevity and anti-aging supplement range over at shop.lisatamity.com. I do corporate wellness programs. I do motivational speaking. Um, I have my books, five books that I've written uh, over in my shop as well. So lots of things going on. And of course, we do DNA testing. I do functional medicine testing um, and lots of other things besides. So make sure you go and check it all out at lisatarmody.com. And if you could do me a favor, I'm doing a survey at the moment. I want people to uh, give me their feedback on the show, what topics they like, who they'd like to have on, uh, maybe areas of of, um, health that you're dealing with, that you're having some struggles with, that you really want some help with. I'd love to hear from you. It's only a two or three minute survey and it's all anonymous. So uh, it's just giving us feedback uh, on the listeners and what they want to hear. So I really appreciate that. Go to lisatamati.com forward slash survey. Now over to the show on the DNA podcast with Kashif Khan. Welcome to the DNA Talks podcast, where we take on the mission of unlocking the code of your genetics. This season is all about you, upgrading your health, not just on the surface, but down to the root cause. Join us as your clinicians at the DNA company investigate your DNA and beyond. The intention of this podcast is to enhance your lifestyle by changing what is in your control. This does not substitute the medical advice given by a personal doctor, therapist, and other healthcare professionals. Welcome, everybody. So, who's joining us today is somebody I've spoken to a few times. In fact, just coincidentally, uh, she just helped me find a supplier for a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. So, that's a whole other story we got to get into. Purely coincidental, timing was serendipitous. Uh, and that's what she has sitting behind her. But we're going to get into a lot today. Uh, first, let me introduce Lisa Tamati, all the way from New Zealand. G'day. G'day. It's really nice to be here, Kashif. 
Yeah, good, good seeing you again. Uh, the, your story, I mean, we, we, it's hard to compress it into an hour, but, but it really people need to hear because your ability to take all of what life can throw at you and just fix it, you know, and then become, uh, there's a lot of things that you've done that are beyond what we think human potential is. Let's just say that. And we're going to dig into some of that today. And this thing that we walk in or walk around in every day, we think we know what it's capable of. We think we know what it's for. And you have defied those odds so many times on mountaintops and deserts. You name the place you've been there, breaking your body and fixing it again. And so we're going to dive into that. So your book, Relentless, also talks about your story with you and your mother and how you did the same thing there. The way you see life and the way you're able to push yourself, partly based on your DNA, as we know. As we know. Uh, yeah. And that also, you, the way you were able to take a horrible diagnosis that most people would have just accepted and started making changes and plans for a different future, you fought back and flipped the diagnosis on its head. And not only that, wrote a book about it telling the world how to do the same. So we're going to dive into a bunch of stuff. So first of all, you are this world-renowned long-distance runner on purpose. When we hear some of the stories, people would wonder why, you know. So sure. tell us a little bit about what got you there and some of your adventures there. Yeah, well, for a start, I've, I've probably got a few mental issues. You, you have to to be a bit crazy to <laughs> do some of the stuff I did. And I am now retired, so um, not doing the long stuff now. So somewhere along the way, I must have um, cured myself from my crazy. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I, I grew up in a family where it was, you know, like sport was everything and, and, and being physically tough was, was what was valued by my dad especially. And yeah. so and being a little girl that always wanted to please dad, I, I always wanted to represent my country and do all that sort of good things. And I, I wasn't, unfortunately, though, I wasn't really particularly talented. From a genetic point of view, I didn't have what it took to 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 be, for a start, I was a gymnast as a, as a kid. And uh, genetically, I wasn't right for being a gymnast. Um, I was too tall and too, um, you know, like you've got to be quite tiny to be a gymnast and quite, you know, compact and have a lot of uh, specific set of you know, genetics really. <laughs> and yeah. I didn't have those. And so when I got to puberty, I grew up too tall and too, too long and everything. And, um, so that sort of didn't work. And so then I tried other sports, surfing, tried surf surfing for years and, and, uh, failed miserably at that. And, um, it wasn't until I really got into running that, um, I came into my own. Now I was absolutely hopeless as a short, fast distance, you know, like a short, fast runner. I, I, again, genetically not made for such a thing. But what I did find is that I had a hell of a lot of determination and a lack of dopamine. <laughs> so <laughs> my DRD2 gene was not really good. So um, yeah. I, I, yeah, always chasing dopamine, right? So when you have that sort of a genetic profile, you you tend to be a very determined sort of, you know, and other genes that are involved in that mix, obviously, um, but very sort of bloody minded. So when I set my mind to something, I just sort of, you know, carried on until I got good at it. <laughs> and so I ended up doing what's called ultra marathons and ultra marathons mm -hmm. are sort of anything over the, well, we talk kilometers. I don't know what you guys talk. Do you? Yeah, yeah, kilometers, yeah. Yeah, 50, 50 kilometers and above, so 100K, 100 milers, 200, 300, uh, you wow. name it. 
and some some crazy things. And then fast forward and uh, met a young Austrian guy that I went out with for a few years, and he was an extreme athlete. And we sort of toured the world and climbed and trekked and cycled around places. And uh, it was basically five years in boot camp of hell <laughs> with this guy. <laughs> um, and that sort of honed my um, ability to really push hard. Um, and then I actually got into the actual official sort of ultra marathoning world and then just loved it because I was in this world of amazing people doing crazy things and having all these adventures and just living my life, you know? And so I had lots of struggles, lots of failures, no talent whatsoever, but ended up having quite a, a long career and doing a whole lot of crazy, amazing things really. I mean, hundred mile runs these days you wonder, can an electric car even go that far? You know, like <laughs> you're, and you're running that far. I can't Very even slowly. imagine. <laughs> yeah, slowly. slowly. You're making it happen. Like that's unbelievable. And the thing that you said earlier about your genetic propensity, you're hitting something that really people have to change their thinking on what genetics means, meaning that here's a person who believes that genetically they weren't designed to be an athlete. Right. But being an athlete isn't just what you physically look like. No. In fact, the best of the best, it's their mind that gets them there. In fact, if you talk to a top NBA, NHL type player, they'll tell you their biggest problems are their friends asking for free tickets and mom wanting a new car. You know, it, it's the stressors that distract them. It's their, it's their mind. So whenever it comes to your genome and how you're wired, it's less like, is this good or bad? Everything is good if you're in the right context. Mm-hmm. Everything is bad if you're in the wrong context, right? You trying to do your short sprints, it doesn't look like you're wired for it. No. Running 100 miles, which is unbelievable, and what tiny fraction of humanity has actually been able to say they can do that, you're able to have the gift of the brain that powers it. So it's awesome seeing that context created this massive result. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, when you when you look at your genetics and you go, okay, I'm not talented at that, but how can I adapt to the situation and yeah. you know as we know like yeah, yeah there are certain limitations I mean uh, you know you're talking about basketball you know not everyone's going to be a basketball player if they're five foot three you know like it's probably yeah. not going to happen so there's certain limitations that we have to go around but within that you can find a variant that maybe suits you or um, another type of sport that suits you or you know whatever the case may be but it's about not letting your genetics define who you are but using your genetics so that you're optimizing who you are, you know? And that's true for anything from fibromyalgia to weight loss. Like there's a reason you got there uh, and there's a reason why you're stuck and use your genes to set you on the right path that's personalized for you, Yep. you know? And so now some of these, I've, I've read your presentations. I've been through your book. I have heard a lot of your stories and I think we need to put a little more, uh, detail into the pain, <laughs> into the pain. <laughs> because carrying a hundred miles is one thing, but I don't think people realize what you actually endured. So tell us about one of your crazy trips. Okay. I'll give you an example. Which one should I pick? So this was a race in the Himalayas, 222 kilometers long. It is extreme altitude. And anyone who's been to altitude would know that like you, you've got well, where we were going was up to 5,700, 5,800 meters. We had two massive uh, passes that we had to get over within this 222 Ks, and we had 60 hours to do it. So that was the sort of parameters of the race. 
Now, one of the reasons why I've done mostly deserts, so I've done 2,000 kilometers in the Sahara, I've done the Arabian, the Libyan, Niger, Jordan, Gobi Desert, Death Valley in the USA, outback of Australia, different parts of it. Um, and the reason I was gravitating towards deserts was they were hot, dry places. And so as an asthmatic, I could cope with that, right, because my mm. lungs were pretty good in the hot, dry sort of things. But you put me in the cold, you put me in the mountains, and I wasn't very good. So sign up for a race in the Himalayas. <laughs> That's logical. (laughs) But um, I was just so excited when I heard about this race because I'd read every mountaineering book there was known to man, right? I just loved all the things that the mountaineers do. And I'd never been a mountaineer, but I'd always dreamed of going to the Himalayas. And so when this race came up, I thought, well, shall I jump in and have a go, you know? Um, And I've been racing for decades and maybe I've got enough experience to get through this sort of thing. So sign up. And the first year that this race had been held, there were only three runners there um, and two of them had ended up in hospital and one had ended up um, actually finishing the race. So we knew that it was humanly possible because we weren't actually sure because <laughs> it was like mm. 3,600 metres was the starting point, up to 5.7, down to 3.6, up to 5.8. Anyone who knows anything about altitude, that's pretty bloody high and you sort of got about one third of the oxygen up at that level that you do down here at sea level. So being an asthmatic, having altitude uh, problems and then the cold and then the huge amount of uphill. So you're really using your lungs because you're running uphill, running, walking, crawling uphill. Um, and so I took on this race and this was really, really scary. And then I had the worst buildup you can possibly imagine because I'd, I'd, I'd managed to get this thing called a hypoxico tent where you sleep in it and it takes some of the oxygen out of the air at night so that your body starts to adjust to the altitude. So the reasoning, mm. but I went too high too fast and slept in it at six and a half thousand meters every night. I didn't follow the instructions. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was running out of time. That's why I was like impatiently trying to get my red blood cell count up and um, ended up with a hypoxic brain concussion, bacteria proliferating in my body because when you don't have enough hy- oxygen and you're hypoxic, the, the bacteria yeah. run wild. So ending up with all these sort of horrible infections. And um, this was, you know, not long out before the race and I ended up, you know, like really quite a bad brain concussion. And uh, going to my doctor, and I didn't know anything at that point about anything. And he said, what are your SpO2 stats at night when you take them, you know, you put that little thing on your finger that they do in the hospital? And I said, oh, around 70%. And he was like, 70% is deadly. You know, you're lucky that you woke up and you've been knocking off your brain cells. So um, you're very lucky that you're you're alive. And I suggest you get the heck out of that tent and that you maybe think about pulling out of this race because you've now sensitized your body to altitude. And on top of that, I was um, anemic because I was, you know, a woman. I had a menstrual cycle that was a bit out of control and I was having problems with things like fibroids and all that. And this is before I knew anything about DNA, by the way. So I couldn't, you know, didn't know what to do to get rid of it. I do now. Um, and so I was really, really struggling to carry oxygen. And then I'm heading, you know, then I went over to Australia and I did a race in the Blue Mountains over there as a prelim race, 100Ks in the mountains. Managed to finish it, did okay. But the next day I'm doing a photo shoot for the North Face and uh, I end up coming down. We've been out there for 15 hours doing this massive photo shoot. When the North Face do something, they do it properly. And I came down on my ankle and I ripped the ligaments off both sides of my left ankle. So now I had, you know, 
a hypoxic brain concussion, all these infections. I'm knackered from this race and now I've ripped the ligaments off my ankle. The doctors are saying you won't be able to run for at least seven weeks and the race is 10 weeks away, right? <laughs> so at that point I'm like, do I pull out? And I'm like, nah, <laughs> I'm going to keep going. I've, I've spent a year and a half training. I might as well just give it everything I've got and see how we go, you know. So instead of focusing on the things that I couldn't do, I focused on what I could do. So I could do mental training. I could do swim training. I could do the gym. You know, I could do all of those. I just couldn't run. So you find a way around the obstacle, right? But you keep moving forward. And then you keep your mind on track to what the goal is. And you don't let the negative self-talk come in. You know, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that could have happened to me. And so went over to the race, absolutely terrified, but got over there. Seven runners turn up to do this race, and I thought I'd be the only woman, and all I have to do, because I wanted to be the first woman to ever do this race, right? Yep. <laughs> I get over there, and five of them are women and two, no two guys. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding, right? <laughs> <laughs> and women are really good at ultramarathoning, you know, because um, yeah, we – the longer the race, the more likely it is that a woman actually stands on the top of the podium, which is probably one of the only sports where that happens, right? Because we don't have the power and the speed that men do, but we do have the endurance and we have an ability to burn fat better and we have a mindset and that mindset is often, you know, as strong as the men's. And so sometimes we end up on top of the podium. So mm. it's not, you know, that women are weaker in all sports. Sometimes they're actually better for certain things. So anyway, I get over there and I'm just starting to run again. <laughs> I'm anemic still. I can't adapt to the altitude. Everyone else is adapting. We have a bunch of doctors that come over to study us because we're like these weird little guinea pigs that they can do all these tests on and see what happens to humans when they're doing this sort of crazy stuff at these sort of altitudes. But they're also telling us about cerebral edema and pulmonary edema and how you can die this way and that way. <laughs> and it's like really negative sort of environment to be around and you're like, oh, my God, I'm gonna, you know, could die. And it gets to the point where you're like so terrified that I'm like, shoot, I, I really don't want to be here anymore and I want to pull out. But you've committed, right? You've got yeah. responsibilities. So I'm like, no, well, I've, I've got to do it. So I said to my crew, I want you to surround me and protect me from anything negative to keep me away from the runners, the doctors, the, uh, the Indian Army who are trying to stop it, anybody who's negative about this. And I want you to fill me with positivity so that I can cope you know and so that's what they did for the last two days we just isolated ourselves they talked me through everything every time I was you know ready to jump off a cliff and go I just can't do this they'd talk me down and and you know they got me to the start line so to speak it was a really really brutal race and I won't go into all the details of all the race but you know I knew that the first pass I'd probably be okay I sort of managed to get up to the top of the pass had a vomiting on the way up and stuff but it was okay at the top, you're not running. You're only walking because you can't run at that level. And then on the other side, I'm coming down. I start running, get an asthma attack, and then come down into the village and the, or this town where there was just horrific traffic and, you know, pollution and just crazy sort of right. uh, Indian city that, that had lots of, you know, crazy traffic that you had to get through and survive. And then we had to get out the other side and then to the mountains again and, um, Another 24 hours later, I won't bore you with that, <laughs> but we're heading into the second pass, and the second pass I knew was going to be make or break. And in the morning, it was like 40-odd degrees, and I ended up with a heat stroke, passing out. Guys came and picked me up, stuck me in the crew car, tried to cool me down, get me back out, and then I'm facing up the barrel of 35 kilometres up 
the side of these mountains again. And the the brain is just fighting. You're in so much pain. Like it's unimaginable pain. And you're struggling to breathe and you're just doubting yourself and you're just battling for every single step. And as the day slowly goes on, this battle is getting worse and worse. And, you, and I'm, in, inside I'm thinking there's no way in hell I'm going to get up this mountain. But I owe it to my crew and I owe it to my sponsors and everyone else to give it everything I have. So I'll go to I can't step anymore, you know. And so as I'm going up this, this, this mountain and then the day wears on and then the cold comes in and I'm putting on layer upon layer of clothing and then I'm ending up um, hypothermic and then it starts a, a massive snowstorm comes in. And then we'd have oh. like these army trucks coming through on these really single you know, like the world's most dangerous highways, that program, you know, yeah. like it's like that, like single massive drop-offs and you've got like 40 army trucks coming through and this uh, altitude above 5,000 metres where you've got no oxygen and then you've got this diesel. And it was just I ended up having another asthma attack. I had to get asthma medications and have a, have a bit of a break and then back out on the road and then I was down to a walk and it was like three kilometres an hour and I could hardly move forward. And I'm freezing, hypothermic, you know, just absolutely at my wits end. I've been out now for 45 hours or so. So if you imagine sleep deprivation, all of that on top of the pain, the cold, the can't breathe, <laughs> um, all of this, and you're in dire straits. And I'm just hanging on for dear life to try to get to the top of this pass. And I'm thinking it's only two kilometers. I'm trying to calculate it. And I said to my guys, go and measure exactly how far it is, you know, work it out on the maps. And they come back and they said, no, Lisa, it's six kilometers. And I just broke because I just couldn't take mm. any more. Like I thought I was closer, way closer than that. And that meant another two hours at the speed I was going, which was three Ks an hour. Um, and I just sat down on the ground and just bawled my eyes out. And I said, that's it. Mm. Can't do it anymore. I'm done. I'm broken. And my crew came around and they huddled around me and they said, oh, my God, you know, like, we're so proud of you and you're just amazing and we've been here. We've seen what you've gone through. And they gave me permission to fail. And then there was one guy in my crew and he came over and he wasn't smiling and he wasn't hugging me. And he sat down in front of me in the snow and he grabbed me by the shoulders and he shook me. <laughs> he said, get up now. <laughs> and well, he used more colorful language than that. <laughs> he was like, get up now and walk. You are not going to fail now. I'm not going to let you fail now. You are this close to the top and not after well, what you have been through and not after what I've been through because I've been in that damn car for the last 45 hours. You're going to get up. And that shocked me so much that I found um, the ability to stand up and take another step. And when I took another step, oh. I could take another step. And one of the other guys came out there and they both, these, these two guys, they walked me and talked me up to the top of this pass over that six kilometres in the middle of the snowstorm, like huge sacrifice on their behalf. They, they had um, cerebral edema. They had like headaches and they were sick and they were, you know, almost as miserable as I was. <laughs> but they got me over that hump. And that's what good friends do. They get you up over that hump sometimes. And then I knew that I was going to finish the race. I had 33 kilometers to go from the top of the pass, but I knew that I'd make it because it was downhill. And I crossed the line in 53 hours and five minutes, and I was the second woman home. <laughs> I wow. was beaten. I was beaten by a 55-year-old grandmother from England who also had asthma. In other words, yeah. it wasn't, you know, the guys, there were two guys in front of me as well. We won't mention them. <laughs> but the lady that won it, she she, you know, she won overall 
and she's 55 and she's an asthmatic and she doesn't look like the super athlete, you know, like you would imagine someone who's doing something mm-hmm. like that because it's not about your age, your sex, your ethnicity, your, 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 your abilities. That one's about up here and teamwork yeah. and teamwork because without the team, I wouldn't have got there. So, yeah, I've got, I've got a whole doco on that one. If anyone wants to watch it, they can reach out to me afterwards and I'll send them the, the doco. <laughs> yeah, everyone should watch it to understand human potential and understand if you're stuck, you know, what it's possible for us to overcome and what the body will give you if you demand more. You know, we don't want to hurt ourselves. You know, obviously, there was training and you got your body to a certain point. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I went and done that race, I probably wouldn't leave the town. I'd start snacking on local food trucks and whatever, <laughs> you know. But uh, the, what's possible is incredible. And how many people can actually say they've gone through something like this, which tells me two things. You are an incredible human. <laughs> Stupid. And second, that we don't try hard enough, right? <laughs> a lot of us don't try hard enough. So uh, it's very inspiring in terms of someone that has a, a problem, an issue, relationship, health, you know, weight, whatever. There's there's more you can do. Yeah, and, right? and, and you know, you don't want to live your life on the on the edge all the time, like pushing to those limits all the time. I mean, the the title of my podcast is pushing the limits, so I do talk about pushing the limits a lot. But there is a place for. Uh, and as you know from genetics, you know, like we need rest and recovery. And one of the great things that I learned when I did your testing was that I have a lot of oxidative stress. You know, I don't handle oxidative stress very well. Um, so I needed to prioritize rest and recovery and if I yeah. wanted to live longer. And that was game-changing for me. We, when, I, when I learned all about genetics and, you know, Dr. Mansour Muhammad is uh, – how is he, by the way? Because he's just – he's the most wonderful person and – yeah, brilliant guy. The father, I would say, of functional genomics. Yeah. You know, he's the one that took this deep genetic uh, science that he was doing in terms of cancer research, and said, "There's, there's more here than just identifying and treating disease. Why do we even need to have disease?" Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you were, you had the blessing of actually working with him directly. You know, earlier yeah. on when you're in our research phase, uh, and we learned why you have the psychopath ability to do what you do. <laughs> exactly. Right. He said, oh, that doesn't surprise me once he looked at my genetics. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And he was the one that opened the world of genetics to me and, and really just changed my life in so many ways because it's, it's changed my life professionally, you know, what we do now, you know, the DNA company and the, the testing that you guys do and the, um, that I've now got. In, in my clinic and what I do, but also personally on a personal level and for my family, it's been absolutely game changing because this is information I wish I'd had when I was two years old, you know, yeah. and had that user manual. I wish I'd known all the stuff that I know. And, and yeah, one of the things that came out of that is that I have very poor GST genes. I have very poor 9 p one gene. So inflammation, oxidative stress, up the wazoo. At that time, it made me actually re-look at my life and go, well, if I want to live a long time, I better change up what I'm doing. And that includes doing ultramarathons because that yeah. was not going to be conducive to me having a, a long, healthy life. Um, and it already paid for the consequences. When, yeah. Yeah. When you look at images of sort of retired marathon runners, you know, that are getting into their 60s-ish, you'll see like one or two people look incredible, but the majority of them don't. Hmm. 
the majority of them look like there's there's wear and tear yep. because of that oxidative stress issue and mm -hmm. when you're putting yourself through it. But like you said, you've identified it early, so it's either stop or supplement. Like here's a biological system that is not working for me. I know how to upregulate it so I can keep doing what I want. You know, and that's another option mm -hmm. also. Exactly. Just interrupting the show to let you know that we are running a survey right now and we'd really love you to give us your feedback. This is your chance to have your say, have your opinion. Tell us what topics you like, what health issues you may be dealing with that you want to learn about, um, some questions are you know that are all going to be anonymous so you, you're not going to have your name on it or anything but it really gives you a chance to give us some feedback and we can optimize the show for you and tailor it to what our listeners really need and want so head over to lisatamati.com forward slash survey that's lisatamati.com forward slash survey and thanks very much for helping us out Exactly. And, and I've done both, you know, so now I, I have switched up the type of sport that I do. So now I do what's right for my genetics, which is a shorter, sharper, high intensity sort of CrossFit style training a lot, you know, so a lot of resistance training, not heavy, heavy weights though, not the super heavy stuff. It's not also not suited yep. to me. And I, and I do a lot of yoga in meditation and things that are going to bring my system down because they have way too much adrenaline and so on. Um, so it's a balance now of that. And, you know, I'm, I'm uh, grateful for the experiences that I had as an athlete, and I did it for 25 years. So it's not like I, you know, <laughs> it was long enough. It was long enough. So I retired yeah. when I was 40, 48, and mum had an aneurysm at that time. So that was a good time to, to quit as well. So there were other reasons to quit as well. But it was, I'm very glad that I did because I didn't know the damage I was doing, but I hadn't been able to have children, you know. And when I, when I trace these things back, you know, with their, pretty obvious why now you yeah. know, it was a combination of things but there was a lot of damage done that I'm now undoing and now my my uh, focus is on longevity um, being functionally fit for as long as I possibly can and trying to do that for my clients as well so that we slow the aging process down and you know I just had a, a an age test done by True Diagnostic you know the, the company True Diagnostic yeah, yeah. Yeah. and and you know I think it's a really interesting area of science now where we're going to be able to work out how fast even different organs are aging and um, I, I still think there's a few bugs in the system I think we're you know we're, we're still early days for that science but in, and some of the clocks are more accurate than other clocks but the, the one that is most accurate is the Dunedin pace um, marker and this one shows the rate of aging how fast mm. you are aging um, at that point in time and mine came back at a 0.69 for every year that I'm living at the time that I did the test. And now that's one of the oh. best in the world because, you know, the, it, you know, if you can keep that under one, like for every year that you're alive, you're aging less than a year, you exponentially lower your risk of all diseases, all of the age-related diseases, the Alzheimer's, the, the, the diabetes yep. and all of that. And so to have a, a market come back at 0.69 means that I'm killing it now. But I, yeah. but it, it did show that on my extrinsic age, a lot of damage was done. Like I'd already, so I was, it had accelerated aging on other things because of all the, the past, you know, right. as, an, as an athlete. So I'm clawing my way back really well, but I was starting from a place that was more, more damaged than, you know, with that oxidative stress and so on, than it would have no, otherwise. That's phenomenal because you're, you're coming from an extreme 
to another extreme, which is no surprise given the way you're wired, you know, this extreme of like the body being taking so much abuse to all of a sudden you've reduced your rate of aging. By, and that number is an impressive number, by the way. We see these tests all the time. That's not easy to achieve. No, it is. And Apparently, is, it's pretty pretty amazing. So you, you, yeah, you're up solid. on all of that stuff. You know you know about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we certainly, it's, we believe it's an amazing way to look at true, like truly how old you are on the inside, mm. right? Uh, because we, I mean, the science of you can do blood work, you can do, you can look at uh protein and, you know, inflammatory type markers and try and come up with them some kind of formulation. But this is empirical. This is like, here's a marker and it's very precise. Uh, there's millions, if not billions of data points contributing to it. And then you really know. And yes, so that, you know, it, yeah, it speaks to what you're doing now. Because you, I mean, you use the word retired, but you're retired from running. Meanwhile, you're a very busy person that is constantly <laughs> active and doing things. And so you're now working on helping people experience their true longevity potential. And how do you do that? What are some of the tools that you employ? Yeah, I mean, I have, for me personally, a, a really extensive protocols that I have. And I'm a biohacking maniac, you know. My house is full of biohacking things, including hyperbaric oxygen chambers and a clinic that I run and um, red light therapy, big fan of. You know, I have a particular diet and I have a um, – a lot of supplements that I take, you know, I do believe we in supplementation. I think our food today is just nowhere near what it used to be. And unfortunately that means we better be supplementing with the right things, you know, and I'm constantly learning. So my, my, and I love it. I just love this whole world of trying to better myself. And, you know, I suppose I'm competing in with against myself in another way, you know, um, and when I'm working with clients, my, my basis is, if I can, is to get genetic testing done because it's a, you know, it's a one-off. You don't need to do it every, you know, like with other tests, which are very valuable, by the way, things like, you know, microbiome and all of those sorts of things. Um, but you have to do them, you know, and compare. Yeah, Whereas yeah. the genetic test you do once and yeah. you've got that information at least, you've got your blueprint. It's not telling you where you're at now. So that's why some of yeah. the other stuff is good to combine with that. But I like to look through that lens plus that lens plus that lens and then work with the person to get them an ideal protocol for their life, you know, um, yeah. and whatever ailment that they're dealing with. Um, and I, I just don't believe that we need to age as fast as most of us are aging. I think, well, we, we, we have the ability now. We know it. I mean, you and I know it because we know the science that is happening in this world and we know the stuff that's coming down the pipeline and how exciting it yep. is, but the general population don't. And they just think that, you know, you just go through life and you just age and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's like there's nothing more further than the truth. Yep. How you age is very, very much tied to your environment and understanding your genetics so that you optimize that environment. Because that means that the environment that suits Kashif does not suit Lisa, mm. you know, necessarily. And so putting you in your environment that works for you and the right food, the right diet, the right exercise, the right supplementation, the right mindset, all of that sort of stuff means that we can optimize you when we've got that info. If we're just taking it as just looking at, say, functional medicine testing and stuff, we can't, we don't know that piece of the puzzle. We know where they're at from some markers in, in different areas, which is valuable, but we need to combine these two, I think, in order. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's like here's your potential, here's your wiring, which kind of points to red flags. Like here's 
address this, right? Because in whatever problem you're complaining about, it's potentially rooted in this. But then we could also measure in time, like you said, to see how bad is it, right? And how much improvement did we experience, like what you've experienced? Mm. And what would you attribute that improvement to? So you've slowed your pace of aging down. What are the two or three key things that, you, that you're doing that you think really drive the needle? I think... Um... Uh, the exercise, the change in the exercise regime, I think that's massive in my case because it was a particularly stressful thing for my body. Um, the other thing is I think I've gotten on top of a lot of the inflammatory situations that I had going on in my body. Like I was an asthmatic. I had, uh, yeah. you know, hay fever, allergies, you know, dust, allergic to cats, all of that type of thing. I don't have any of that eczema. I don't have any of those things wow. now because I have the right supplementation to make sure that, you know, I'm optimizing my genetics for that. I'm keeping yeah. uh, the foods that I eat, you know, relatively. I'm not perfect. Uh, I live by the 80-20 rule as far as, you know, having I'll have a, um, a cheat meal every now and then. I'll have, you know, something. But generally speaking, I eat a hell of a lot of vegetables. <laughs> I'm, you yeah. know, eating the rainbow every day. Um, in fact, I stuff vegetables in me any which way I can um, in the form of vegetable smoothies that taste like crap. But um, <laughs> it's getting that, I, I, you know, I'm always aiming for around 600 grams of vegetables a day of green leafy vegetables. I think that's made a, uh, been a game changer. But I'm, I, I'm not a vegetarian or vegan or anything like that. I, I, I eat a good amount of protein as well. And, and mm. animal proteins in my case because that suits my genetics. And, again, it's a, it's that's something that I've learned, that that's what I need. I, I was vegetarian yeah. for a number of years and actually I was never been so sick for me. That was just not ideal for me and I wasn't doing it perhaps correctly either. You know, So I think there's room for all diets within the genetic profiles, but we have to counter mm you know, and be aware of our areas of, of weakness. So I think those are the same, some of the things when I look back at all the ailments I used to have and don't have, it's just gold now. Like I just don't have, I used to have incredible back pain. I, I broke my back when I was 21. I had two discs that were really severely compressed and bulging discs. Mm. And then it w went to four because of all the running that I did that were, you know, basically gone. And they said, well, you need to fuse your back. And I was having spasms and, you know, like 10 times a day, I'd be like, you know, spasming on the floor and I'm, you know, really, really bad shape with my back and always in pain. And now I have no pain whatsoever. I didn't have a fuse back. I got on top of my digestive issues I got on top of my inflammatory issues in the body and the pain is gone, the pain from the back. That's and I do a lot of core. That was the other thing that I did was strengthen the core so that it's able to maintain mm. that back, back, back stru structure. So with those three things, I now live a pain-free life where I used to be in hell pain in my back all the time, even in my running career. You know, I was just always yeah. in pain. Nothing that's else. that's awesome because this is where people get stuck you know imagine there's some pain and you're diagnosed with chronic pain meaning you're told that this is a part of your life now right? i would never accept that you know i mean there's, yeah. there's different types of you know ailments as we know and how what your situation is but i've been told so many times and this coming back to mum's story that it's impossible. She's dying. There is no way out. 
she's got, you know, when she had the aneurysm and the stroke, we were told she'd never, ever come back to us. She was never going to have any quality of life. Well, they were wrong, mm. dead wrong. And it took thousands and thousands of hours of retraining her brain and it took hyperbaric oxygen and it took genetic testing and it took diet and it took supplements and it took everything it took. Uh, but we got it back and we got it back fully. And then we were hit with concussion after concussion because in their process she fell over a lot as she learned to walk again and so on. Mm-hmm. So, And, you know, on top of brain injuries, that's not a good thing. And then we were hit with a CNS lymphoma, which is, you know, brain tumours. And we were told after the brain surgery, they took the tumour out, they did the pathology, she's got weeks to live, there's nothing we can do, this is a very aggressive cancer, get ready to die. That was now two and a half years ago. I've written a book called What Your Oncologist Isn't Telling You and Mum Doesn't Have Cancer in the Brain. Yeah. You know, like you don't have to just roll over and die. You have to have a fighter mentality. I mean, I have chucked the bus at, at, at everything that I have at her rehabilitation. At some point, we're all going to die. But my attitude is very much one of a fighter. I'm a warrior. I'm a fighter. I don't. I don't. Yeah go, oh, well, she's had a good innings. It's time to go. Stuff that. Like we, we yeah. every, de- every damn day that we get on this planet is a blessing. You know, like I, I you're dead a long time. And I, I don't agree with that attitude, you know, and I get it every time we end up in the hospital for something, and we do on occasion. We had GI bleeding a few months ago and, they're like, sign this piece of paper that we won't resuscitate you if you should have a heart attack or anything because you're not worth saving. That's the message I'm right. getting. They're saying, sign this piece of paper because we could break your ribs if we do, you know, um, <laughs> have to resuscitate you or something. And I'm like, break my damn ribs, mum says. I don't, you know, like, bring me back. <laughs> I want to yeah. come back. And they're going, well, you'd be, you'd be in a very vegetative state. And she's like, well, I've been there before. And I came back from that before. Like we 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 write people off, and they want to write people off. I mean, this is you know getting a bit off topic, but I I believe that life is precious, and that we should we should fight to stay here, and that you should give people the opportunity, especially if they want to. And it's really up to them. If Mum said to me, "I'm done, it's over," well, I wouldn't just accept it, but I would have to respect her wishes, but she wants to fight, then I'm going to fight with her. You know? Yeah. And well, we know where those uh, genetics came from for you. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> both my parents, both fighters. You know, I, I did lose my dad. Yeah. I, I lost him three years ago, and that was a another very tragic situation. But he was a fighter. He fought to the end, you know, and I fought yeah. alongside him to the very, very, very last breath. And you know, so you did something for your mom, which most people wouldn't even consider because you're again being guided by clinicians, which is you need to do that the acute response mm. of medication, chemo, whatever it is. But you decided to install what we see behind you that uh, <laughs> blue tube, right? So, <laughs> how did you get? <laughs> now, yeah, I'm going, to, I'm trying to get one now, <laughs> they're, uh, the same one, yeah, they're good. So, how did you get there? Why, how, where did you? find that this is the thing that my mom needs. Yeah, the hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So this was uh, my desperate search when she had the aneurysm eight years ago was to, you know, like what what out in the world, you know, because I was being told there is nothing. So, okay, ignore that. 
hit the internet or what helps with brain injuries. And I came across the work of a doctor called Dr. Paul Harch, um, who has who is one of the world's leading experts in hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And I read a book called The Oxygen Revolution that he'd written. And I'm just like, oh, whoa, this is amazing. And this is a chance. And this is something. And I asked my doctors here about it and knew nothing. Got poo-hooed, rubbish. It's um, quackery. It's, it's rubbish, you know. Um, and I'm like, well, I don't think it is. And I've read the book and this doctor has, and I saw the videos that he had, you know, on his website of all the people that had recovered after, you know, massive brain trauma. And so I'm like, I've got to get this. And so then I, I had to find a place to do it. Um, and at, a, at the beginning, I um, actually approached a commercial dive company and they let me use this as I got my mum eventually out of hospital. The first day I got her out, I didn't even take her home before I took her down to the to the factory to stick her in this big hyperbaric chamber, <laughs> and, and um, which was not easy. We had to use a forklift to get her in and it was real, you know, oh, wow. it was quite a rigmarole to get her in because she was, you know, she couldn't move. Um, she was in a, in a barely sitting up in a wheelchair. Um and I did 33 treatments there, and then I lost access to that chamber because it had to go off on a contract. And um, But I could see that she was responding. She she didn't just get up and walk or anything, she, but she was starting to use her hands and she'd been paralysed on the, the right side. Mm. And she was starting to um, try to form words, and there was just a, a flicker of intelligence behind her eyes, and I just knew that this was actually having an effect. Um, but that was already 33 treatments in and you only had the small effect, but I'm like, this is working. So then I went, you know, searching the world and came across the guys that I just introduced you to and, uh, bought a, a, a soft shell chamber, um, and installed it in a house and then started to do one session after the other. And then I started starting everything else, including the, the DNA company and Dr. Mansour's work and then came you know, one step ahead of her in her rehabilitation process, developed my own systems, my own protocols every day. We worked with her around eight hours a day, extensive work. And uh, it took me two and a half years to get her back to full full health and full capacity, like full driver's license, going to the gym, walking 5Ks a day, you know, doing all that. Um, and that, you know, the hyperbaric was a cornerstone of her rehabilitation, both for that and then later for the concussions and then later for the um, uh, the cancer as an adjunct adjunct therapy um, has been a very powerful part, part of that process. So now I have a clinic with a hard shell chamber um, as well as the, the, the one that you see in the background there and I'm a huge fan of it. It's just... So you have a clinic so in New Zealand where your clients come to yeah. use it. At, okay, yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll send you some photos. <laughs> yeah, sure. Love to see. And you mentioned uh, the dive shop. I, I guess traditionally you see these chambers for people that have like the bends that went scuba diving and exactly. feel off and it gets them back to normal. Yep. It's, and, so it's the opposite because they're coming, they've been down under the water and they've come up too fast. And so the nitrogen has, has, has basically, you know, expanded in their uh, blood vessels. And so they have to be put, brought back down and then brought up slowly. So right. that, that, but so, but it's the opposite. We actually get put on an oxygen mask, and then we go to the equivalent. Not actually underwater, but your equivalent of being in in most cases. So this one here is a one point five atmosphere. So that means you've got one and a half times the amount of atmospheric pressure 
on you that you do here at, at sea level where I am. Um, and yeah. that allows you, and then some of the chambers go up to two and even up to three atmospheres and beyond um, for the, the dive situations or in the hospital situations. With a soft shell chamber, you can only go to a maximum of 1.5. And 1.5 is the perfect space for things like brain injuries and many other things. For for things like diabetic wounds and even for cancer, it would be better if we could get up to two. But when you go up to two, it has to be in a it's, – it's a lot more difficult, put it that way, and there's a lot more regulation around it and this, the type of chamber that you have to get, the you know, the cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and it just you know it's a step up in the difficulty yeah. sort of thing in providing it but the the 1.5 is really powerful yeah we've therapy. seen like from biohackers to celebrities to you know longevity gurus will typically have one of these at home yeah it, you know? it, it, honestly if you can possibly afford one get one or get into a clinic and you do need to do this in either a block of treatments so it's not a one and done it's a bit like going to the gym you do need a block of treatments if you're depending on what you're dealing with i mean if you're going in for surgery and you just want to optimize your body before surgery and after surgery then yeah two or three before and two or three afterwards might be enough for that but if you're dealing with something like stroke or cancer or you know concussions or things like that you really need 30 40 treatments in a relatively short period of time ideally um, Alzheimer's, mm. all of that type of thing, you need to have, in an ideal world, you'd have a block of treatments, say 30 or 40, and then you'd have that maybe once or twice a year, you know. And so for some people having it at the clinic, that's doable, and some people, you know, actually getting one and putting it in your house is, is a really good idea. And I don't know if you know this, but how does it compare to the oxygen uh, that people get in their blood, like people get the, the IVs and You'll go to a clinic, and I think they call it a five or a ten pass. You go for ten sessions. Oh, that's ozone therapy. Yes, ozone, ozone therapy. Yeah. So related, that's all part of the oxidative medicine family. So you've got ozone right. therapy, you've got UV uh, um, UV light red, um, therapy, you've got hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and you've got intravenous vitamin C, and you've got red light therapy. And these are all part of the oxidative medicine family, meaning that they're mm. working on the oxidative pathways if you like in the cell and so they come at it from slightly different angles um, but yes ozone therapy is not something that I've been able to offer yet but it is something that I'm very interested in getting the training for and doing at some point um, I have a home ozone machine so I use ozonated water you can use it mm. um, in, in rectally um, so up your bum so to speak <laughs> with a you have a little bag that you use with for ozone and that's really good for getting um so o3 um oh i don't want to butcher the science because i'll probably get it wrong but it's it's it, it kills in viruses bacteria very very good for things like that also used oh, it's used in, in so many different ways and then you got the five and ten pass types of ozones that you get in the um doctor's offices where you uh some blood is taken out and it's put through a uh, UV light sometimes and then it's put through the ozone machine and then put back in. Um, and yeah, they're all, they're all good, powerful uh, therapies. Mm -hmm. My favorite of them though is, is hyperbaric because yeah. 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 But they all. Well, because of you, I'm going to be getting one, you know, yeah. <laughs> I've seen them everywhere, 
but I, I, from you, it's the outcome. I've seen that it, what it's done oh, yeah. right, for your mother. And, and, so and my, my aging rate, like, you know, that, that true diagnostic test, I, I do attribute half of that probably to hyperbaric. I mean, mm. it's a bit hard to tell because I check everything and everything, but. Yeah. <laughs> and how often do you use it? Oh, I use it at least three, four times a week. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. And have done for eight years. So I do think, because I'm 55 now, and I think, like, my, my uh, okay, I can't run the stupid distances that I used to run because I'm not trained in that, but I feel fitter, stronger, healthier, uh, leaner, everything, yeah, more, yeah. more than I used to be when I was 20 and when I was 30. And even when I was That's running, all. like, crazy distances, I was not healthy. And now... Like I said, I don't have all the ailments that I used to have. What is it? Yeah. Is it the supplements? Is it the diet? Is it the exercise? Is it the hyperbaric? I think it's a combination of all of those, but I do think it's a cornerstone. It's certainly something I'm not never letting go. <laughs> yeah. So if, if Red Bull came along tomorrow and said, Lisa, we know you said you're retired, but there's one last race you need to do. <laughs> it's 200 miles, whatever, something crazy. And there's some crazy amount of money that's going to go to cancer research and all this stuff. Would you do it? Probably not. Not right now, unless no. it was really, really <laughs> a lot of money. Um, because <laughs> I can't leave mum now, you know, like um, she's my yeah. priority. So my value system is that my family is first. So right. if it was going to benefit my family to do something more than it was going to cost them for me to be away, then yes, that would be my criteria. Yeah. Am, am I am I going to um, improve the lives of my family through doing something? Then I'll do it. If it's not, then I'm not. Yeah. You know, so yeah. everything goes through that lens. And mum needs me now. I mean, she's 82. She has got, you know, obviously been through a, an awful lot. And uh, she does need uh, looking after now. So she is my, the lens of through which everything uh, do and that limits me now. That limits me in my um, my um, entrepreneurial endeavors. Sometimes I can't travel yeah. far. I can't get to conferences often. I can't, you know, do speaking gigs all around the world. I've had to turn down because I can't travel. Um, can't do my racing, but that's okay. That's that's what you do, you know, when you yeah. love somebody. And that's yeah. that has to be priority at this at this time, you know. And with longevity as a goal. You know, there's this study from Harvard. It's this really famous study because it's a, it's the longest ongoing longevity study the world has seen. Mm -hmm. It started in the 1930s and it's still going on. Wow. And what they're trying to figure out is what's that one thing that if you just do this one thing, it's the biggest impact on longevity. And they said it's maintaining high quality relationships. Yep. So like what exactly what you're doing, right? It's a lesser volume of high quality relationships. Yep. Yep. And that's the one thing that they found with all, if you look at the blue zones, you look at these people, it's a consistent trend. Yep. You know, it's connect, connection, connection, yeah. love, feeling. I think one of the reasons why mum continues to fight on, despite all the horrors she's been through and there've been some horrors and losing dad and, you know, things like that is that she feels loved. She feels wanted. She's needed for her grandchildren, for her children. So she has a purpose in this world, despite the fact that she's got a few disabilities now and, you know, needs help with some things. She knows her value as a person mm -hmm. and as the, as the head of this family still. And that means that she's going to fight to stay here. 
and that's mm. you know I make sure she knows that I need her and that her grandchildren yeah. need her and you know all the rest of it um, because if you take away a person's purpose then they're gone if they're no longer yeah. of use to society then they often just give up because they don't feel you know they've done step tests in the old people's home when they've just made them responsible for a pot plant for goodness sake and that alone you know or an animal then they will be responsible and they'll stay around to look after that pot plant or that that animal it's that simple like we need each other we we we're not made to be isolated and alone and I, I, t- I fundamentally disagree with the thing we'll make them comfortable and then stick them in yeah. a corner in front of the telly and just wait for them to die that's just not okay in my world yeah no, I really think this, that we- this is amazing I mean everything you've done you've applied that it's I mean it helps that you're genetically wired to be a warrior yeah. right uh, but what we learn from you is what's possible you know, and um, and it, it is too bad that you're not globetrotting speaking anymore. You were inspiring so many people, but you're now now technology allows you to do it another way. You have your podcast, you know, there's online events and stuff. So we're still hearing from you. And of course, your books teach us a lot and the videos. Everybody go to YouTube and look up. There's a documentary <laughs> video. I think that was about the Himalayan yeah, yeah, trip. Yeah, right? a, I've got, I think I've got eight, eight documentaries on there um, with different races yeah, so around the world. Yep. Everybody should take a look at those and understand what is possible and time to put the excuses away right <laughs> let's make it happen so lisa i wanted to thank you it was this phenomenal conversation as always whenever talking to you you know i get inspired i feel uh like i'm underperforming now and i gotta go do something <laughs> hell no <laughs> i look at what so, you do like it's, you know all the work that you've done and what you're setting up now and you know i'm just like wow wow and I'm jealous. I'm like, oh, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to go and do all these amazing things and to know all the people that you know? And, you know, uh, yeah, that's definitely not true, Kashif. <laughs> well, this is what happens when you got dopamine deficiencies. Me and you are in the same bucket. Exactly. bucket so it's, it's what drives us. <laughs> so, so thank you again, Lisa. Thank you for sharing your personal stories, you know, and, and inspiring everybody. And everyone can now understand that there's so much more that we're capable of that we think yeah. let's just let's start doing it absolutely absolutely believe in yourself find people who tell you you can not people who tell you you can't surround yourself with mm-hmm. those types of people and then just go for it awesome thank you lisa thanks Kishu. that's it this week for pushing the limits be sure to rate review and share with your friends head over and visit lisa and her team at lisatamati.com <laughs>